This talk is brought to you by iBiology.org, and this audio was taken from a video available on our website. My name is Russell DeBose Boyd, and I'm from the Department of Molecular Genetics at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. In this presentation, I'll be talking about the feedback regulation of HMG reductase, which is a rate-limiting enzyme in the synthesis of cholesterol. So this slide shows the structure of cholesterol and some characteristics of this important molecule. Cholesterol is a sterol, which is distinguished by this four-ring structure. This four-ring structure imparts stiffness on this molecule, which makes it an ideal component of cell membranes. Now, because cholesterol has a large number of carbon-carbon and carbon-hydrogen bonds, this molecule is virtually insoluble in water. So because of this reason, cells must be able to um, maintain cholesterol in a narrow range, such that enough cholesterol is produced for the cellular needs of the molecule, but avoid the toxic overaccumulation of cholesterol. Overaccumulation of cholesterol can be toxic at the cellular level. Now, this slide shows some of the essential functions of cholesterol. Cholesterol is absolutely necessary for life. As I mentioned earlier, one of the most well-recognized roles for cholesterol is its role in cell membranes, where it maintains optimal membrane fluidity. Now, cholesterol turns out to be an important precursor for um, very important molecules, such as steroid hormones, which help distinguish between girls and boys, bile acids, which aid in digestion and nutrition by solubilizing dietary fats and fat-soluble vitamins. And then finally, cholesterol um, is abundant in the brain, where it's found in myelin sheaths that surround axons and help in synaptic transmissions. Now, cells in our bodies, mammalian, mammalian cells, acquire cholesterol through two sources. One of the sources is illustrated in this slide, and that's through the synthesis of cholesterol from the precursor, acetyl-CoA. Now, the conversion of acetyl-CoA to cholesterol occurs through the action of more than 20 enzymes. Now, as you can imagine, um, the synthesis of cholesterol involves the production of, of several intermediates, and these intermediates themselves can also be um, converted to very important end products. For example, this compound, pharnosopyrophosphate, is a precursor for an important compound called dolacol, which is involved in N-link glycosylation. It's also a precursor for heme and ubiquinones, which are involved in cell respiration. Vitamin K, which is involved in blood coagulation. And then finally, um, this pharnosopyrophosphate and geronopyrophosphate become attached to many signaling proteins, small GTP proteins, directs them for membranes, and this um, modification is absolutely necessary for normal cell function. Now, in this slide shows that um, the synthesis of cholesterol occurs in various tissues at different rates. Now, the liver and adrenal glands synthesize the most cholesterol in our bodies. And I should point out that this was actually done in mice, but similar um, effects are seen in humans and other primates. The liver, the liver synthesizes large amounts of, of cholesterol for mainly production of lipoproteins and also for bile acid synthesis. The adrenal glands produce cholesterol primarily for steroid hormone synthesis, whereas the gut synthesizes cholesterol to, um, for, for cell division. 
A large number of cells in the gut are sloughed off every day and must be replaced by new cells, which require a, um, a marked amount of cholesterol synthesis. Should also point out that the gut is also a source of lipoprotein production. So now the second source of cholesterol is actually from the lipoproteins that are produced by the liver and the intestine. So shown here is a model of the low-density lipoprotein. This is a major cholesterol carrier in human plasma. So the low-density lipoprotein, or LDL, consists of a core that's composed of free cholesterol. So the hydrophobic cholesterol forms the core of the LDL particle. Now this hydrophobic cholesterol is surrounded by a shell that's composed of a phospholipid with various um, amounts of esterified cholesterol. This is cholesterol to which a fatty acid has been attached to it that's intercalated into the uh, phospholipid shell. Now this entire uh, LDL particle is surrounded by a protein called apolipoprotein B. So this slide actually depicts how um, cells acquire cholesterol from these two sources, endogenous synthesis and from LDL. So LDL receptors that are on the surface of cells um, bind to LDL by interacting with this apolipoprotein B particle that surrounds the lipoprotein shell. Once the LDL particle binds to LDL receptor, the entire complex is internalized into coated pits. And these coated pits are then targeted to lysosomes, where the LDL particle is degraded. And the cholesterol, free cholesterol, is now liberated and provided to the cell for various uses. So again, these two sources of, of cellular cholesterol, either from the um, receptor or LDL receptor mediated endocytosis, of LDL or through endogenous synthesis can be used interchangeably. So for example, if LDL becomes limiting, the cell switches to um, endogenous synthesis for its sources of cholesterol. And if the endogenous synthesis is blocked, then the cells can now use exogenous LDL for their source of cholesterol. So we've talked about the uh, essential function of cholesterol. It's important in cell membranes. It's an important precursor of steroid hormones and bile acids. However, there's a bad side of cholesterol. And that's illustrated in this slide. For a number of years, elevated levels of blood LDL cholesterol is associated with um, a risk for coronary heart disease and heart attacks. So shown here, you can see that um, the level of blood cholesterol literally correlates with risk for coronary heart disease. And this is because elevated cholesterol can actually uh, deposit in the arteries that lead to the, to the heart. And over time, this deposition um, results in a disease called atherosclerosis, in which this deposition of cholesterol can lead to the production of plaques that ultimately can block blood flow to the heart, thereby creating a heart attack. Now, one of the um, most widely prescribed uh, drugs to lower LDL cholesterol are a group of drugs called statins. Shown here is the, uh, the typical core structure of the statins and some of the uh, various forms of statins that, that have been utilized um, in the clinic. Over the years, the statins have become one of the most uh, largest selling medication, medications in the United States because of their ability to lower um, 
blood LDL cholesterol. So shown in this experiment is a summary of at least four studies that reveal that statins indeed reduce LDL cholesterol and that reduction leads to a reduced incidence of coronary heart disease. So shown here in the closed circles are uh, clinical trials in which patients were either treated with a statin shown, shown in the closed circles or a placebo. And in each of these studies, the statin treatment led to a drop in LDL cholesterol levels, and this drop in LDL cholesterol levels uh, led to a reduction in coronary events, i.e. heart attack. So then the question becomes is, you know, how do statins work? And what do statins do? So we first answer what do statins do? So statins inhibit the enzyme HMG coireductase. HMG coireductase catalyzes the rate-limiting step in the synthesis of cholesterol. It's actually the fourth step in the cholesterol synthetic pathway. So statins competitively inhibit HMG coireductase by mimicking the product of the reductase uh, reaction, mevalonate. So this competitive inhibition of the reductase underlies the ability of statins to downregulate um, LDL cholesterol in the blood. So how do statins work? So again, by competitively inhibiting HMG coireductase, this leads to a drop in the amounts of mevalonate and, of course, a drop in cholesterol. This cholesterol depletion leads to an increase in the transcription of the uh, gene encoding the LDL receptor. And as a result, the number of the LDL receptors on the surface, especially of the, the liver cells, and this increased LDL receptors leads to an increased or enhanced uh, uptake of blood LDL, and that reduction in blood LDL is responsible for the lowering of coronary heart disease in statin-treated patients. However, the clinical effects of statins are actually blunted um, by a compensatory increase in HMG coireductase that accompanies statin therapy. And that's illustrated in this slide. This is an immunoblot of HMG coireductase protein in the livers of mice that have been fed a statin, or even in cultured cells that have been treated with statins in vitro. And as you can see, statin treatment causes a marked accumulation of HMG coireductase. And this accumulation, as I mentioned earlier, blunts the clinical effects of statins. So our next question is why do statins cause HMG coireductase to accumulate to such a high level, which I should point out has been estimated to be at least 200-fold. So normally, HMG coireductase is subject to an enormous amount of feedback regulation. And this feedback regulation is mediated in part by sterols. Now statin treatment, as I mentioned earlier, blocks HMG coireductase activity and it prevents the synthesis of these sterol molecules. And of course, that prevention of sterol synthesis actually is responsible for the upregulation of the LDL receptors and subsequent reduction of LDL cholesterol. However, because the statins block the synthesis of sterols, it disrupts the feedback regulation of the reductase. And as a result, three events happen. First, because of this reduction in cholesterol and other um, products of the cholesterol synthetic pathway, there's an enhanced transcription of the reductase gene, there's an enhanced uh, translation of the reductase mRNA, and then finally, there's an enhanced stability of the reductase protein. So these three events are responsible 
for that marked increase in the reductase protein I showed you in the previous slide. So over the years, my laboratory has been interested in trying to understand the molecular mechanisms that underlie this enhanced stability of the protein, and that will be the subject of the remainder of this presentation. So this slide illustrates that sterols indeed accelerate the degradation of HMG reductase. So in this experiment, we use classic pulse chase analysis to monitor the stability of reductase in cells that have been treated in the absence or presence of sterols. So what we do here is we typically label cells with radioactivity, a small subset of HMG reductase molecules. We then take that radioactivity away and then follow the, the, um, the stability of the reductase protein in the absence or presence of sterols. And as you can see here, when the cells are chased um, in media that contains no radioactivity in the absence of sterols, the reductase is fairly stable over time. However, if you can see, the addition to sterol in the chase medium causes the reductase levels to markedly diminish. Again, this is indicative of the sterol-accelerated degradation of HMG coi reductase. Now, to understand the molecular mechanisms for the sterol-induced degradation of the reductase, we've got to understand the structure of the HMG reductase protein. And the domain structure of the reductase is actually illustrated in this slide. So HMG reductase consists of two distinct domains. It has an N-terminal domain that anchors the protein in the membranes of the endoplasmic reticulum, or the ER. Now this N-terminal um, domain, which we refer to as a membrane domain, contains eight membrane-spanning regions and is followed by the second domain of HMG reductase, which we call the catalytic domain. So the catalytic domain protrudes into the cytosol of cells, and it contains all the enzymatic activity of HMG reductase. In fact, a truncated version of the reductase that only contains the catalytic domain can completely rescue um, the synthesis of mevalonate in cells that lack HMG reductase. So the catalytic domain is both necessary and sufficient for the synthesis of mevalonate. Which then raises the question, why is this protein membrane bound? And it turns out that the reductase is actually a membrane-bound protein as far back as its yeast. So the function of the membrane domain of reductase was illustrated in this early experiment that compared the stability of the catalytic domain, which remember contains all enzymatic activity, to the full-length enzyme. And again, a simple pulse chase analysis was used to monitor the stability of these two proteins. As you can see in the panel on the left, the truncated catalytic domain produces a very stable protein that importantly, its degradation is not influenced by sterols. In contrast, the full-length protein, which again contains the membrane domain, is less stable, even in the absence of sterols, and you can see that sterols markedly accelerate the degradation of HMG reductase, which indicates that the membrane domain, the function of the membrane domain, is for this sterile accelerated or sterile induced degradation. So what the previous um, studies indicated is that the membrane domain of reductase is necessary and sufficient for sterile accelerated degradation. And it suggested that the membrane domain either directly or indirectly, can sense intracellular levels of sterols. And the sensing results in perhaps a conformational change in the reductase membrane domain that causes the protein to be susceptible to rapid degradation.
And of course, because statins block the synthesis of cholesterol, statins indeed block this, what we call ER-associated degradation, or ERAD, of HMG-CoA reductase. So a key breakthrough in our understanding of the ERAD of HMG-CoA reductase came with the discovery of a pair of proteins, ER membrane proteins, called NSIG1 and NSIG2. These NSIG proteins, for the purposes of this talk, are very redundant. They perform redundant roles in the degradation, or ERAD, of HMG-CoA reductase. They're identical, they're about 85% identical, and they're um, highly hydrophobic proteins. Now, the role of NSIGs in the ERAD of HMG-CoA reductase was first illustrated in this experiment. So here again, we use pulse chase analysis to measure the um, sterile accelerated degradation of the reductase in cells that were either transfected with um, control molecules um, called siRNAs or cells that were transfected with siRNAs that would lead to the knockdown of expression of both NSIG1 and NSIG2. And as you can see in the panel on the left, in the cells uh, transfected with the control siRNAs, sterols um, markedly accelerate the degradation of HMG-CoA reductase. So open circles are experiments conducted in the absence, and closed circles are experiments conducted in the presence of sterols. And what you could readily see is that the knockdown of NSIG1 and NSIG2 completely abolishes sterile accelerated degradation, indicating that these proteins play a key role in the process. So our next question is, what is the mechanism by which the NSIGs um, accelerate the um, ERAD of HMG-CoA reductase. So this, this slide shows that inhibitors of the proteasome, the 26S proteasome, block the sterile-induced degradation of HMG-CoA reductase. So as you can see in this experiment, first two lanes, um, sterols cause the reductase to become markedly degraded, and this degradation is completely blocked when these cells are treated with the proteasome um, inhibitor. So, with, this allows us to create um, another model in which, again, the membrane domain of the reductase either directly or indirectly senses levels of intracellular sterols. This causes the reductase to bind to NSIGs, and that NSIG binding um, leads to reactions that cause the reductase to now be degraded by the 26S proteasome. Now, it's known that most substrates of the proteasomes require their prior ubiquitination. Ubiquitination is a process by which the small protein ubiquitin becomes covalently attached to substrate molecules. Um, and once a chain of ubiquitins are attached to substrates, it becomes uh, recognized by the proteasomes for degradation. Now, this is called polyubiquitination. And polyubiquitination of proteins requires the action of at least three different types of enzymes that's illustrated in this slide. In the first step, ubiquitins becomes activated um, in an ATP-dependent manner um, by an enzyme called um, E1, or ubiqu ubiquitin-activating protein. In the next step, the ubiquitin is transferred from the E1 to, the, to another enzyme called E2, or ubiquitin-conjugating enzyme. In the final step, the E2 combines with an E3, or ubiquitin ligase, which in turn is associated with the substrate shown here in green. 
what the E3 does is facilitates the transfer of ubiquitin from the ubiquitin conjugating enzyme to a lysine residue in the substrate protein, generating a ubiquitinated substrate. Now this process occurs many times um, until a ubiquitin chain is built upon the substrate protein that can now be recognized by the proteasomes for degradation. So considering that these NSIG proteins are required for the degradation of the reductase and that the reductase actually is degraded by proteasomes, our next question is, is reductase um, ubiquitinated? That um, question was answered in this experiment shown in this slide. So what we've done in this experiment is we, we've treated cells in the absence and presence of sterols and um, the proteasome inhibitor. After these treatments, we immunoprecipitate the reductase and then probe those immunoprecipitates for either total reductase shown on the bottom panel or ubiquitinated reductase. So as you can see in the first lane, um, even though reductase is pulled down in these experiments, we see no reactivity with ubiquitination. However, sterols cause the reductase to become ubiquitinated, and this ubiquitination is markedly increased if we also include proteasome inhibitors. So what it indicates to us is that sterols indeed cause the reductase to become ubiquitinated, and this ubiquitinated protein is now degraded by proteasomes, as indicated by the stability of ubiquitinated reductase by these proteasome inhibitors. Our next question, is NSIGs required for this sterol-induced ubiquitination of the reductase? And again, we turn to siRNAs. Cells were transfected either with a control siRNA or siRNAs against NSIG 1 and 2. We then treat these cells in the absence of presence of sterols and then probe for ubiquitinated reductase. And as you can see in the first two lanes, the reductase is nicely ubiquitinated in the presence of sterols, and that knockdown of NSIG 1 and NSIG 2 completely abolish this ubiquitination. So that now allows us to fill more gaps in our um, model for the NSIG-mediated ERAD of HMG-CoA reductase. Now it turns out that a subset of NSIG molecules actually associate with an E3-E2 ubiquitin ligase complex. Again, in the presence of sterols, the membrane domain of reductase senses the sterol and this sensing causes the reductase to bind to NSIGs. And of course, um, these, these NSIGs then bridge the reductase to the E3, E2 ubiquitin ligase complex. This bridging then results in the ubiquitination of reductase at two lysine residues in the membrane domain. And this ubiquitination then causes the reductase to be uh, removed from the ER membrane and subsequently degraded by proteasomes through a process that we're not completely, um, through a process that's not completely understood. So in summary, I've told you today that HMG-CoA reductase is a rate-limiting enzyme in the cholesterol synthetic pathway, and it's a target of these cholesterol-lowering statin drugs. The reductase is controlled through a very complex feedback regulatory system that's mediated by cholesterol and other types of sterols. And its statins disrupt this feedback regulatory system, in part by blocking this NSIG-mediated ubiquitination in ERAD of HMG-CoA reductase. Visit us at iBiology.org for more free talks from the world's top scientists. Funding is provided by the National Science Foundation and the National Institute of General Medical Sciences.